Hey, y'all. We made it. We're here. Did you know that America runs on white lies? It's true. Especially in the Northeast, where, you know, the racism is really ingrained in the culture, so much so it's normalized. You see, a white person could tell a lie and repeat it enough that it becomes a truth. And this is a fact as old as slavery. And if you didn't know, you need to go figure it out. Because you see, people, the time is now, and we need to cut the white noise. Malcolm X warned us. He tried to tell us, be careful with the white liberals. But did we listen? Now, last week, I started talking on this, and I had some serious audio issues. I probably still am. I'm working on it, so sorry. Um, but I do thank you for staying on. And, you know, please feel free to like, follow, and share. All the support is appreciated. And know that I am speaking in my truth. and also amplifying the truth of many other unspoken and unheard. So the support is truly appreciated. And what I'm speaking to is our truth. And if it offends you to the point that you get mad and enraged and doubtful, then you might want to go, you know, do something about that. Because, you know, here's the thing about not being white. We have no choice but to deal with what is. We don't get an opportunity to fight that. We don't get an opportunity to say, oh, no, that's not true. I can defend myself. And... If you think that sounds crazy, then you really need to do some, you know, um, studies or research on the prison industry complex. Um, this was America's answer to carrying on slavery. America has one of the biggest prison systems in the world. Now, I don't know where you've been or what you've been up to, but to me, it says a lot about a country and a people if it would prefer to continually fund a prison system as opposed to creating jobs, as opposed to rent control, as opposed to giving tenants rights, as opposed to recognizing that everybody should have health care. Do you realize how many other incentives, uh, you know, needs, whatever word you like to use. I'm so angry I can't <laughs> because it's 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 disgusting. But we put money in the prison system like no business. I'm telling you, we do it. We will quicker shut down schools and get rid of after school programs and teachers. We would rather limit the process by which Black and brown teachers get certified. Social workers get so, you know, certified. The quickest way to get somebody derailed from doing something is to ensure it's convenient to them. Let me tell you, let me say that again. The quickest way, and this is one of the oldest tricks used by employers to get rid of employees they no longer desire, is to make them uncomfortable by way of, you know, say the time that something's done, changing up the schedule, using their work as an example, you know, suddenly showing interest, over-interest in certain things to make them anxious. 
I don't know if anybody cares to think about this or does not see the relevance, but I do because work-related PTSD is a real, real thing, and it's happening right here, right now, and especially in Connecticut. In my opinion, the true job security in the state is heavily underreported. Why do I say that? Because if we did not have a housing crisis, which we do in fact have in Connecticut, and if you are lucky enough to be able to afford where you're sitting, consider yourself blessed. We have many brothers and sisters who have nowhere to live. They're going couch to couch, house to house, friend to friend, in the car, on the street, wherever they could get sleep. Some even stay on buses and trains. Did you know that? Did it even matter to you? Let me tell you something. Don't come for me. I'm speaking in my truth. It's sad when I have to preface what I'm saying with that because that's how you know how many times I've been gatekept and gaslit for speaking in my truth. What? Yes, that happens here. It really, really does. And it's normalized. And it is supported. The thing with the Northeast, it got a lot of credit for being so revolutionary, but truly the racism and all the other isms affiliated never ended. It just got revised and normalized. Look at how, you know, we had to fight to be able to wear our hair. Are you serious? I've been, you know, I've been to work sometimes and see some of these chicks who do not have, you know, um, Afro-American hair, kinky hair. And they look like they just roll out of bed, but that's okay. They could do that. Whereas I've seen sisters been worn. They come back to work with those rules. That's not professional. You have to wear your hair a certain way. Since when? Since when? Since we do it. Let me tell you something about white lies. America loves white lies. It does. It built its whole culture on it, the whole thing. And if you think that's not true, then clearly you were not paying attention to when Donald Trump ran for office. You, you must not have been paying attention. Because that man right there, he brought back attention, really, to something that we choose to ignore. We do. We choose to, many of us choose to ignore it. Many of us have grown so accustomed to racism and subliminal racism that we don't realize our isms in ourselves. We forget that we might be the majority where there it might be a couple, as you all say, minorities present. And we carry on with our passive aggressive behavior, comments, and everything else. And we don't see what the problem is when the black or brown person says, hey, that was a little heavy in the tone. That was a little offensive. Let me tell you something. If black and brown people were to really tell white people all the times, like if, to correct them, I should say, when white people were being subliminally racist, some of you all wouldn't be able to handle it, for real. Because you see, it's so natural to you, okay? And I'm going to offend some black people too because... You know, the white lies gets power from our involvement. You see, when the black and brown people decide to buy into the lie, that makes it even worse. When they support it and they give it life, that makes it worse. And that's what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump steamed through that election 
And, you know, he ruled it. He didn't roll through it. He ruled it. I used the right word. Trust me. Because he didn't miss a beat. And <laughs> what was sad is that you will see black and brown people at these rallies. And I'm sitting here asking myself, what the? Huh? See, I got so caught up. I forgot to tell you all. This podcast right here today might sting. If you choose not to listen further, I'm not mad at you. But I hope you respect and understand I'm speaking the truth of myself and others like myself. Okay? That's what this platform is about. This is CJ and this is the sound of black and brown. Let's digest this some more. White lies. Let me read something from Christian Parenti, uh, an excerpt from their paper here, Crime as a Social Control. Is crime proto-revolutionary, a pre-political form of rebellion, or is crime a form of social control? Is it the auto-repression of communities that have throughout history rebelled in organized and unorganized ways? It is often alleged that during the late 1960s and early 1970s, Many on the left romanticize street crime as proto-revolutionary rebellion. To some extent, this position had currency among elements of white ultra-left. However, mainstream criminologists and historians of the late 60s have overemphasized this. To the extent that there was romanticization of crime, it was based in part on a warped reading of Fanon's ideas about the psychology of subversive and politically heuristic effects of revolutionary violence and his casting of the lumpen, the lumpen classes in colonial towns as potential militants rather than as a declassed and dangerous dross white Marxists often took them to be. Yet, to be fair, left valorization, I hope I pronounced that right, of crime as proto-political was neither common nor even very important in shaping left politics around criminal justice. Any back issue of this journal's earliest incarnations will attest to that. So was so what is a radical reading of crime? By crime, I mostly mean index offenses or interpersonal violence such as murder, rape, assault, along with non-corporate theft like burglary and strong arm robbery. To some extent, however, we could throw in the violence associated with addiction and street-level narco-capitalism. Now, this is a very interesting piece, right? Because... You know, the truth is, crime is a way of maintaining control. You see, because by allowing the crime to take size, and when I say take size, by making sure that it's emphasized to the point that the community isn't fair, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be afraid of crime. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, listening to what I just read, we should be, you know, realistic, yes. Crime has been used to sway certain decisions. It's been the reason why America decided to take war on other countries. Okay? It's a way of exerting power. This country is 
built on that. It's love of guns. It's love of control, the ego, the agenda, the white lies. The white lies that were told to justify the reason why black and brown people needed to be enslaved, declassed, terrorized, tortured, demeaned, and felt less than. The white lies that made you believe you should hate yourself, that made you think that you're obese, that made you think that your hair wasn't straight enough, that made you think that you're a deadbeat because you don't have a corporate job. These are all white lies, okay? Don't you find it interesting, if you think on it a little bit, what we grew up as being the ideal careers, let's just start there with the white lies. Doctor or lawyer. Now, no offense to my friends, because I do have a few friends who are lawyers. And I have, you know, I deal with doctors as well. Listen, don't don't come for me. I'm speaking an opinion here. I'm just saying most of us were told you didn't make it unless you was one or the other. But then the media took on its own life. And then it became about being a celebrity. And then that in itself, when you think on it, at least from what I recall, the TV wasn't always for us. To the extent we were even misrepresented. How would you feel? How do you feel when you see black people portraying white people? Is it funny to an extent or is it funny? Which one is it? Okay. So that's just like a little inkling of how we feel when our characters are portrayed without us. Nothing about us without us. Now, here's the thing with white lies. White lies takes on many forms, you see, right? White lies could come in different facets and including activism and advocacy, believe it or not. And that's the part I really want to take hold of because I feel like the political white lies should be pretty obvious, but we'll come back to that. Don't worry about it, you know. The point is we have to face it for what it is. We can't move forward if we're stuck in, in reverse. We really can't, right? And the fact is, white lies is what has afforded us as black and brown people to be held back. It, it allowed for that to happen. And it made it feasible and even profitable, even non-profitable, right? The government realizes, uh-oh, you know, we need to do more for the people. So now they have all these nonprofit programs, and they all sound great. We're going to help you with this. I'll help you do that. We'll give you access to this. But then it's not managed or even constructed or even involving us. So how could it be for us if we're not involved? Why does that seem like you all sat there in a room, in a dark room somewhere, and made decisions, and then said, okay, that sounds great. We'll give them that. Bye. Because that's what happened. That is what happened. Historically, black and brown people have been cut out of their own rightful blessings, earnings, everything. And it still happens today. And it's more normalized now than ever. You look around at nonprofits, locally, statewide. If you pull the demo data for these nonprofits for leadership, both executive, top management, and then you look at the staffing and you pair that against the tenure, what do you think you'll find? 
You tell me. What do you think you'll find? Do you realize that during COVID, and when I say during, we're not out of it, right? I'm talking more so the beginning phases of COVID. Do you realize that most of the images that got paired with the essential workers for COVID were white people? You would never think we had black or brown doctors or nurses or CNAs. What? Let me tell you something else that might shock you. Yale is built, every brick is built with white lies, every part of it. Yale came into New Haven and really, and it has and it continues to do it, exploited the city. You came in here, you got rid of the indigenous people who were here, you enslaved the black people, you thought it was all good and cute. And yet, if you look in the history of Yale, I mean, people, you could just go into the school and look at the chairs and you will see the history of slavery at Yale. Yale that makes billions of dollars. And don't tell us you don't because you do. You're telling me you're so progressive and you care so much, but yet you have not paid a dime back to New Haven. And although by right, okay, you would think in Connecticut, we say we're so progressive. These are words that are said. That's what you call virtue signaling, okay? For those who like to put a label, because, you know, that's another thing with white people. It has to have a label. If you don't have a label, it's not right. Isn't that interesting? Very telling, I'll say, right? The point being that they, we all know Yale should pay taxes. But see, the thing is with that, it will take a federal amendment to the Constitution. That's how rooted Yale is in slavery. Did you know that? Let me tell you something. When a law is at the federal level and has been there for that long, that it takes that level of power to fix it, that should tell you how much you know, racism and other forms of oppression is behind it, okay? because nobody wants to touch it. They like it like that. They like knowing that we have black and brown New Haven students who have to deal with seeing syringes on the floor, dirty trash cans, you know, hearing about all the gun violence, waiting for the buses in the cold, you know, I mean, come on. And being threatened if they're not in school, the whole New Haven public school system is a whole other conversation. But the point remains, Yale sits there and gets to take, take, take. And what do we get? We get left with the inflated rents. We get left with the slumlords. We get left with the lack of job opportunity. I remember years ago, right, I attended um, a job fair, one of those job fairs. It was at Yale. And they had like 50 of us in a room. Now, I showed up, my hair was, you know, it wasn't dyed funky or anything like that. You know, I was well put together. I had on a suit. That's what they told us to do. Like, now, you're hearing me talk about wearing a suit to an interview. You'd assume I'm going in for a management level position job. It wasn't. It was for an executive administrative assistant job. But that's, that's the thing, right? That's the thing. We have to look a certain way. So 50 of us are in this big room. And, you know, they take us up to do the interviews. And some of the questions they were asking, 
if not most, were so racist. One of the questions I was asked, the interviewer said, so are you a single mother? That's illegal. That's none of your business. And he laughed, and he justified by saying, well, you know, um, we just want to make sure you could make the hours because us, you know, we're here, we work a lot of long hours, and if you have kids, it might be kind of stressful. Super inappropriate. And he did not care. Why? Well, because he works at Yale, and I was attending a job fair facilitated by an agency trying to help people find work. So I was in need, and he was in privilege. He also let me know that he was gay, an openly gay white man. And he asked me if I had a problem with that. Now, I don't know how many interviews you've been to, but I'm going to, you know, say that was really, really, really inappropriate. But here's the bottom line. I wasn't the only one that had to deal with that. And also, this gentleman, he had support with it, see? Because, you see, that's how white lives work. They get support. They get power. They get fuel. White lives will come in the form of what we we saw during COVID, right? We saw all these people wanting to get vaccinated, but the lie was only certain people could get it. White lies. The other white lie is when, you know, we get arrested. So I saw this video. Um, it was a video I came across on YouTube of a man who, I think it's out in Ohio or Florida, one of the two. But I'm pretty sure if you search for a man who calmly turns himself in, I might even have the states wrong. I really wasn't paying too much attention to that, um, to be quite frank, because I was more like frustrated by what I saw. And what I saw was um, it was a police officer's dash cam. So it's a YouTube reel. A YouTube reel is a, a mobile video. So you'll know the difference because they they don't look square. They look rectangle. Okay. And... Um, this was dash cam video of a white man walking up to a police officer and admitting to said police officer that he had a gun and his friend, a woman, female friend, um, saw the gun and she wanted to play with it or use it or whatever. And by accident, he shot her in the chest. Now, he was very calm. He was very collected. The officer stood there taking his statement. Asked him like two or three questions. Very calm, very collected. Did not have him sit on the side of the road with his pants down. Did not ask him to undress. Did not throw him to the floor. Did not aggressively. There was no sign, form of aggression from conversation to interaction. None whatsoever. Okay. In fact, what I'll do after this, I'm going to the link. I'm going to see if I could add the link in the description so you can see this video for yourself because, I mean, it took my breath away and I'm asthmatic, so I need every breath. Ha -ha. Um, the point is, if that were me, <laughs> if that were me or a black man, do you really think that would have gone that way? The answer is no. And you can't tell me I'm wrong. How many incidents of police brutality need to happen before we dissolve the biggest white lie of all, that we need police, more police. 
I'm going to tell you something. I'm not saying that we're at a point in society that we cannot have police. We're not there. We're not there because we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of pain to deal with. We have a lot of rebuilding that needs and has to happen. We're not there. We have people in community that do some real egregious things, right? But what I'm saying is over-policing is a different conversation. See, there's two different things, no police versus over-policing. I'm talking about over-policing because realistically speaking, as a survivor of sexual assault, all right, I'll be remiss if I sit here and I say to you, we don't need police right now because that means rapists and pedophiles could run around and do whatever they want. Until we're to a point where we understand how to reform our communities properly, we need the police there, but we do not need them to over-police, and we need them to know that their role is their role. For example, here's another thing. Why are 911 calls being routed to one location for the region? Why would you do that? If we have such densely populated areas, shouldn't New Haven have its own um, 911 dispatch? Like, all the calls go there. I'm not talking about a dispatcher who receives it because here's the thing that happens when you call 911. When you call 911, your call is routed. It goes to a main person who then locates the, you know, the department closest to you and sends it there. So there's a time lapse there that could really truly mean the difference between life or death. Now, here's another quick fact. When these 911 calls go in, Say this is a call for an overdose, right? Somebody's overdosing. You're calling, my friend's overdosing, or whatever it is. The clock starts on the emergency right then and there, which means that by the time the dispatch, the, the third person involved, so it'll be you making the call, the main dispatch, the second dispatch, and then it goes to whichever emergency center. So but the police go first, right? <clears throat> The police go first. So this person's overdosing. A police officer who's not trained to deal with that gets there first. I mean, really? Right? Now, then the EMTs show up. Okay? We have a big problem here because the clock is still ticking and the social worker has a limited time to get there. What do you think needs to be changed there? I'll tell you what I think needs to be changed. Number one. Um, I'm not the governor, nor am I the mayor. I don't think y'all would want or desire that, to be quite frank. So I'm not going to sell myself the fake dream. Trust me. But here's my strong suggestions. Number one, let's let's really be real about it, right? If we say we're addressing crime, let's do it the real way. The real way is not hiring more police. The real way is to go back to the system itself and say, okay, what's not working? In what I just described... You could create jobs right here. You could say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to really take control of this 911. And guess what, Connecticut? It's okay if you lead the way. Did you know that? Did you know you could do that? Okay, let's go on. So the first thing I would do if I had the power to do it, I would say, okay, we're going to separate this thing now. We're going to change the response time because it's not fair to a social worker, a community health worker, an EMT, their clock starts the minute the call comes in, yet they receive it later than everybody else, right? That's not fair. That needs to be changed. That needs to be changed. Why is, why is that so important? Because the efficiency and effectiveness of these crisis response folks 
are based upon their timing. So if they're set up to fail from the beginning, why would the program be successful? You see what I'm saying? The other thing is, let's create some jobs. Why should we have one main person handling all the calls who will then dispatch it to a dispatch when we could actually create jobs by just hiring dispatchers? Look at that. And we would be returning money into the community. And we could even get fancier because this is something else that we don't do and we should do. We should say, okay, this job, these particular jobs are limited to Residents only, residents who have been living in the city for three years at least. Actually, I would say five. Because as someone who resides in the area, it's hard when you show up to work and you're hustling and bustling, but then the person two steps above you who doesn't even live in your area, couldn't care less, gets to show off because they're coming from out of town and, of course, they're white. Come on now. You see how we're set up to fail. So what I'm saying is let's, let's, let's re-rule this. So instead of having... The calls go in. It's one person that gets dispatched again, who dispatches again. Let's cut that out. Let's let's lessen let's lessen that line. Let's have more people at the local dispatches. We really don't need the regional. You just need to train your local dispatch and how to filter calls. That's really what that is. And what will happen is in my setup, my proposed setup, those people at those dispatch centers, right, who do not have to be police officers, by the way. We could create a whole different role for them if we want. We could link it as a bridge between the health department and the police department. We could create them as, um, I don't know, emergency dispatchers. I didn't, come, I didn't get that far in the thought yet. But the point is, this group of people would now handle the calls. So you see, the time that would have been wasted with the main dispatcher trying to reach a dispatch who will then try to reach somebody, let's cut that loophole. Let's have the dispatchers filter the call by asking questions, right, that would have been asked anyway. So they're asking the questions anyway, but they have more tools to help the person on the other line. Give them the tools that they need. Don't set them up to fail. The other thing is we need to be real about when police are dispatched before emergency health workers. Now, it's either going to be one goes first or they get there at the same time, right? If they get there at the same time, it would mean that there needs some, to be some type of communication plan, some type of system set up where the police and the emergency responders, including community health workers and social workers, are within proximity to the point they can leave together. It has to be something like that. Now, logistically, the reason why the police show up first is because we have enough of them, they say, sitting around to do the work. Now, I've spoken to first responders myself. Some of them have said they've had back-to-back -back calls, and these are police officers in terms of first responders, by the way. Pardon me. And they've said to me that one of their issues is, is that some of these calls they show up to, this is a police officer sharing this with me, they're not equipped to deal with. What are you supposed to do as an officer if you show up and somebody's threatening to kill themselves? If you, you're not trained for that, if you show up and somebody's overdosing, you're not trained for that. You're, I mean, they are trained to protect and serve, right? Now, see, this is where the critique on the nonprofits come into play. This is why we need to have more black and brown people leading and managing these nonprofits because the problem is 
we have made nonprofits into a profit-driven industry. Real talk. We did that. Yes, that happened. It happened right here in America. You would think in this country that's facing all this devastation, right, we wouldn't do that. But, yes, it is happening right here, right now. There are some nonprofits that create duplicate rules that make no sense, but they wrote it into the budget. So somebody's getting paid to just show up to work and somebody else who's not getting paid nearly enough is struggling to get to work, struggling to survive, but will never make it, right? People get awards and recognition, show up on TV, all of that, all of that. Lots and lots of white saviorism, lots and lots of that, you know, and very narcissistic in its own way, right? Because it's like, we should all bow down to you now because you took time out of your white life. Yay. I didn't ask you to do that. You chose to do that. If you woke up in the morning and you said, I want to run this cause or whatever it may be, you chose to do that. You should not treat it as a pedestal for you to sit on and exploit people. And that's what some of these nonprofits do. They do it. They really do it. And you see it by how the whole makeup looks from the staffing to the board to everything else to the whole mannerisms you encounter when you go into the place. I mean, I've heard stories from people about some of the interactions they've had while looking for help with their light bill or housing help or whatever it is at different nonprofits and the attitude, the, you know, the reception. All of us are not on fentanyl and we should not have a label I know this might sting some white some people, but we should not label our people who are consumed by an addiction such as drugs or violence. That's the thing we need to unlearn. But to us to un- for us to unlearn that, we need to be realistic with the expectations both of ourselves and of those we are trying to heal. Okay? We need to realize this, right? Look at the school system as a prime example. The school system is a prime example. You have all these white teachers trying to control, as they say. Because if you listen to the teachers, they say, I'm trying to control the class. Why, why is a white teacher even being allowed to speak like that? Don't you see what's wrong with that sentence? But anywho, we have white teachers teaching black children. Okay? So what is the white teacher supposed to do when the black girl whose braids fell out and is being teased? How is a white teacher supposed to address that? When a white cop shows up to a scene where a black person is overdosing, what's the expectation there? You tell me. You tell me that. Okay. When a black or brown person goes into a medical center that is surrounded by white staff, how much information about their health do you really feel they're going to give you? You tell me, right? But you see, what happens is that logic gets bypassed for the dollars because of the virtue signal, virtual, virtue signaling, sorry. Virtue signaling is saying when you're about something, but you're really not about that, right? And we've seen this time and time again. Just recently, we saw the legislator who was drinking drunk, driving, huh, drinking, I can't even pronounce it, driving a drink, <laughs> drunk, haha, uh, driving and drinking drunk. This is a fact. I'm not making it up. She was doing it. The legislature, see, I got a tongue twister trying to say it. She was doing that before, okay? 
She was doing that before. This was not her first time in the rodeo. She had allegedly been showing up to other places drunk or at been at events and she was drinking. But because it was allowed and because she was able to get away with the white lie. Oh, no, I'm okay. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I was just, you know, I was just having a good time. These are the white lies they get to tell. Now, let my black ass show up to work drunk like that and it's visible to that degree. And they're going to try to figure out how to get rid of me. They are. They're going to try to figure out how to get rid of me, right? Because, see, that's the thing. Anything and everything we do on and off the job can and will be used against us. That's just how it goes if you're not white on the job. When you're white on the job, you could do whatever you want as long as nobody finds out, right? It's cool, right? Look at the chick who's lying for years while being black and running the NAACP up blatant disrespect, a blatant white lie, but she got a tap on the hand and empathy and understanding and everybody was like, oh, you know, you know, she's just trying. No, you just exploited a whole community willfully, willfully you did that, okay? Here's another recent white lie, Attica. Your research on that, on what really happened to the prisoners at Attica back in the 70s. There's a movie about it. I think it's on um, Hulu, I want to say, or might be Amazon Prime. Check it out. How would you feel if that were you? I'll give you a summary. So this goes back to the prisoners and the uprising that happened at that facility and the way that it was handled. Okay. The warden came out and the prisoners had their demands. And these were actually decent, respectable demands, to be quite frank. They wanted decent food. These people were being fed with a budget of 21 cents a day. What do you think back in the 70s could have been purchased to put on a damn plate to feed prisoners for 21 cents a day? You tell me, okay? So just imagine the food, right? They talked about the sewage. They talk about different things that were bothering them. And these were all aesthetics within the jail that had just been forgotten. You know, it's just like how slumlords move. They don't care if the place is falling apart. They don't care if they see signs of mildew. They don't care if the stairway is falling apart. They don't care. Why? What did I say before? It makes you uncomfortable to get out, right? So the whole logic that was upholding this white lie was, well, we don't want to make it too comfortable because jail is not somewhere to I mean, you're talking about sewage problems. You're talking about floors with piss and shit and all of that. So the prisoners, you know, they facilitated an uprising. They did not hurt anyone. They did not. They said that they had staff that they were holding as hostage until their demands were met. No, they didn't hurt anybody. The warden decides to come in. All of this is taped, by the way. It's taped. And it will um, leak into mainstream media, as they said, accidentally, right? But anywho, so the warden comes out. The warden says what they have to say. And, you know, when I say what they have to say, he, he's trying his best to say yes, you know, do the yes and nod, yes and nod with the prisoners. But the prisoners weren't buying his shit. And they kept asking for proof. 
each time he would come back, this went over, I think it was like three days or something like that. He would come back with more white lies. Yes, I'll do this. More white lies. Yes, I'll do that. No, I'll show you the evidence later. No, don't worry about it. All the bullshit they like to tell us. And then the helicopters came. So they called out the prisoners to the yard and a helicopter flew over. And they sprayed them with gas. Yeah. Sprayed them with gas. And then, you know, it was so bad that even the media personnel ran out. Okay. The media personnel ran out. They couldn't take it. <laughs> they're coughing. They're gone. And then they hear gunshots. So they're like, wait, what the hell? So basically what happened was once the jail knew that outsiders such as the media were safe, they opened fire on the prisoners. They killed 29 people, I think it was. Okay, just like that. When the smoke cleared from the gas and all that, um, and they looked around, bodies were just laying on the floor. The person who they felt was the ringleader, while all the melee and everybody else was running around nervously, they um, drug him into a corner. They took him. They dragged him across the field. They beat him up, and they shot him to death, right? And, you know, all of this was done while the fumes of the gas is blowing around. When the gas and all of that cleared, they had the prisoners stripped down naked, naked, and made them walk back into their cells. That's America, and that happened within our century. And if that sounded a lot like slavery, it's because it was. Let's not forget the part where there were people on the outside, once they heard what had happened as far as, you know, the guards, you know, doing what they did to the prisoners and everything, people were yelling out, white power, white power. Now, for you here in Connecticut who think that white power, white power, and all of that doesn't exist. Clearly, you don't know your history of what happened. I believe it was in Scotland, Connecticut, right? So there's different little parts of Connecticut where there are presence of KKK. It is true, and skinheads. They're here, and they have their meetings, and they have their things, and they operate in plain face because, you see, what you expect the meetings to look like may not necessarily be what it looks like. And when I say that, they don't always dress up in white and wear a hood. They might show up at a bar with a jacket on. That's what it looks like. Now, see, the slavery, the racism never ended, my friends. It just got revived. Let me show you another example of racism. The gatekeeping and the gaslighting, right? Now, their jobs, sometimes I look at the jobs that are up and I'm like, I look at the experience. They legitimize why they put up certain experiences. But the truth is, the employer could take whoever they want. Most times they just already know who they want, and that person may not be you. Or they'll justify not picking you by alleging you didn't have the experience they were looking for. So what experience were you really looking for then? If you're talking about you want somebody to work in the community, shouldn't it be someone who knows and understands the community? But you see, when that happens, whenever we're hired for a job that we know we'll be good at and they know we'll be good at, it's a problem now. Oh, and control. See, white lies are necessary for the white supremacists 
and those who don't like to say that term, but they do it anyway, because that's the thing. Some people really feel, well, I, I don't identify as a white supremacist. No, 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 no. If you have the traits, my friend, the traits are the traits. It is what it is. Swallow it like tonic and let's fix it. If you really are about equity. And if you're not, you'll do foolishness, like pretend to care about people. When in truth and in fact, as long as you're a little bubble and all your stuff stays intact, you don't care who you have to tear down or what you have to do. And if somebody doesn't do or say what you like or they offend you with their opinion, you're going to tear them all the way down. That's what they do. They burn us down. They burn us down. They don't like us speaking in their truth. I am a survivor of that. Real talk. You know, and I empathize with others who have had to deal with that. It's not it's not an easy road, you know, and I can tell you the legislative session is one that always gets really tricky because they don't want us to participate. And I've said this for a long time and I'll continue saying it because if they did, they would make it way more accommodating. You would make sure there is language interpretation. You would make sure that the public hearings are being shared on mainstream TV. We have local network channels. In my little country that looks like a Timberland boot, that's what we would do. We would, you know, we would have them, you know, have these types of things aired on our local network because this is what the people need to know, right? But in this state, by any means necessary, they will guard information and they will keep you away from whatever they want to if they need to. If they decide they want to rip you down, trust me, they'll pick up the phone and they'll do it. They'll give you a bad review and be happy with that. They don't care. They don't care. You know, I feel like if, you know, if for whatever reason you part ways with someone, then, you know, just leave it be, man. Like, that ship has sailed. You made the decision to part ways. Get over it. But that's not what happens here. It's a lot of gatekeeping. It's a lot of gaslighting. You know, and the white lies go on and on and on and on and on. And they take a life of its own. I've been victim to that many times, countless times. But I'll tell you when it hurts the most. It hurts the most when your own get involved with it. It hurts the most when the people you expected to have your back you find out that they not only helped with the white lie, they basically created the damn thing, okay? And then they end up doing virtue signaling too because they claim to be about our lives and our people, but then you let that person tell a white lie and you said nothing or you did nothing. you rather uphold them and defend them. Why? Because people, white people come with a level of privilege. So... By nature, we seemed, some of us seem inclined to protect the white lie because we profit from it. We benefit from it, right? I'd rather tear you down than get rid of that person because, you see, you're just another black person. And they're going to label you, and it's easy to get rid of us. It's easy to malign us. That is nothing. That's nothing. That's what they do. That's what they know to do, and that's what they have been doing. And my question to you is, when are we going to cut the white noise? What would it take for us as black and brown people to really accept 
to really understand that for us to be free, it starts with us. And we have to protect each other and we have to support each other. And guess what? We have to realize that what the white ally needs to do is respect our space and existence and support that. Anytime a white person becomes more obsessed with being, you know, the center of or accredited with, or, you know, when I see certain signs, that's when I say, nah, I'm good. I'm straight. Because you see, that's the ego right there. So I'll give you an example. Let's say we're working on a paper together. We're all working on an op-ed. It's five of us, myself, four others. One person's white. Now let's say three of the people are white and one of the white people is cool uh, writing the paper or whatever. We're all writing it together, but this person is like, you know, whoever. And then say there's like a Latino, right? Now, let's say myself and the Latino, we have all these ideas and we propose it. Right, And we're saying it from our perspective, here's what we think, but every time we suggest it, there's a problem. That's subliminal racism, my friend. Subliminal racism is something in the Northeast we don't like to talk about because it stings, because it makes people stand up and realize, oh, shit. Subliminal racism could happen in a conversation where white people are talking and there's few of us people who are non-white, and then they start talking to us like we're one of them. That's actually subliminal racism. Subliminal racism is when you start to exert certain mannerisms, tones, behaviors, but you do it in such a way that you yourself may or may not realize how ingrained it is in you. Another example, why, are we, why do we need to send emails with big gold letters and highlights and underlines? That's craziness. I had a supervisor like that. This chick, every time she sent me something to do, she made sure she used a highlighter and she validated it by saying, well, you know, I just want to keep the order. No, no, no. That was very, very passive aggressive for no reason. None. She would even tamper with my work and then say I wasn't doing my work well, but she got away with it because she validated it by saying that, oh, I was trying to help her. So when she said that, the blame came on me. Why didn't you catch that? How does that work? And why do we allow it so much? That's the question I keep asking myself. The Northeast keeps saying it's so progressive. It's so this. It's so that. But the racism in this state is so normalized. As I mentioned last week, on last week's um, podcast, a friend of mine who visited from out of state, she was shocked. She was shocked. You know, she's from Tennessee, and she said, well, at least out there, you know who's racist. You know who's not. Out here, it was a question mark. You tell me what's wrong with that picture. You tell me. And you'd also tell me how to fix it. Black and brown people will apply for jobs, man. And it's so sad. We could have all the credentials in the world. We could have the best credentials, be the best person. Like I said, I told you my story about what happened to me when I went on the job. I had on a whole suit and everything, and he still belittled me. And even in the movement, we get shoved out of our own fucking space. Could you believe it? Because when white people decide to get angry about something, they don't care if you're mad or even if it's about you, they'll shove you out. Oh, I could tell you about for that for days. I even had the experience of a white person. <laughs> this white person was doing the most atrocious, racist shit to myself and other black people. And you would think 
our fellow uh, people of color would have defended us. But no, they did not. No, they did not. You know why? Because money talks and black people walk. That's how that goes. It's a tale as old as fucking slavery, my friends. And my question is, when are you going to get mad enough to cut the white noise? When are you going to get frustrated enough to say, all right, man, you know what? We need to lift ourselves up. How many shootings need to happen? How many times do we need to get thrown around by police or ripped away of our rights or demeaned or disgraced? How many times? I had a white person growl at me and then legitimize it. Mm-hmm. And they did it three times, just like Judas. And they got away with it. Knowingly was disrespectful. Seriously. And this person prances around as an activist. And they get to rely on their gender identity. Let me just talk on that real quick. Because this is another thing that's been coming up lately. Yes, this is true. We saw um, LGBTQ plus Trump supporters, white LGBTQ plus Trump supporters. This is not a lie. They are there. And this might offend those who identify as, but again, I'm speaking in my truth. I have firsthand experience people using their gender identity to validate their racism. How the fuck you going to growl at me and then start to cry like a girl talking about, well, she's mean. And I didn't even say a word. I did not say a word. You legit waited till I was standing there by myself. And I all I did was turn and say, hey, and you growled at me because you knew I wasn't trying to deal with you. And then you ran back to the people I thought were my friends. And you made it seem like I was being aggressive. Why? Because I'm an angry black immigrant woman. That's why. That's why. So what happens? So in the end, what happens is after watching them passive aggressively treat my friends, Right. And I tried. I tried my best, you know, with what I had going on. I tried to get the matter dealt with, but it kept getting worse and worse. I mean, every fucking thing you could think of this white asshole could do to show their whiteness. They literally did it. There was one time we were sitting there, just the three of us, we were talking. Actually, it was me and my friend, my fellow uh, peer, uh, black brother there. And um, he and I were outside talking and we were just talking to each other. And this motherfucker just comes out there and farts. Nasty, too. I thought it was funny. Except we didn't find it funny. And then when we said something, they ran to the leader. I was like, I was just being funny. (laughs) Another time, they challenged my friend to a fight. A whole fight. um, A sword fight. And they did not like it when they lost. And they got real angry, arrogant, all of that. They were drunk. They were high. But it was excused. Another time, they became sexually inappropriate with someone. And then when something was said, oh, I I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I was trying to use the bathroom. That's bullshit. And all of this was excused. Let me tell you something. You know what hurt the most about that? It wasn't so much the white asshole and their white lies. It was the person they went to who believed it, who I thought was my friend, and who I thought was someone in the movement that was a real ally, a friend, family almost, if not. Like, that's how close I thought we were. And then I started to see it for what it was. It wasn't that he didn't believe me. He didn't give a fuck. He didn't care because I'm nothing. Me, I'm nothing. That's what that is. 
That's what that sounds and feels like when you entertain white lies, right? But it happens so much here in this state. It's normalized. Just the way that people talk to each other alone, I could dissect a conversation that will piss you all off. And you'll look at me like, well, I didn't think that was offensive. You're right. You didn't think it was offensive, but I did. So what you going to do now? Keep justifying your bullshit? If I point out to you that certain terms and, and mannerisms make me uncomfortable, feel offensive to me, and you still do it, you let me know all I need to know right there. Real talk. And then I'll be like, all right, I'm good on you. Simple as that. It's very, very simple. Because I didn't go through everything I went through in my life and I'm still dealing with to continually accept being disrespected and discriminated against. And if you didn't think so, then you're part of the problem. That's my philosophy. I feel like we're at a time, especially in this big country, that's supposed to be about liberation and all these other things. We need to stop entertaining the white lies and we need to dilute and silence the white noise because it has taken over. We can't even represent our own damn selves and our own cases anymore. You look at the Black Lives Matter marches, who you're seeing out there. But you know what? They need to march because our feet are tired. So I'm kind of 50-50 on that one. But my point is they shove us out of every space, they, every fucking space. It don't matter if it's a corporate space. It don't matter to elevate a subway space. They'll shove us out. Nonprofit, they'll shove us out. Advocacy, they'll shove us out. That's how ingrained the need for power and control is in here. I'm telling you. And my question to you is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? When are we going to get the real white allies who are going to step forward and say, we're not entertaining this anymore. We're shutting it down. Shut them down. Shut them down. Figure out ways to make them uncomfortable. Make them leave their jobs. Expose their bullshit. Expose them. That's what you could do. Don't shove us out of the space while you do it. But help us get our space back and make sure we are represented and we are where we need to be. A white person should not feel comfortable being in front of a camera for a black or brown-led cause. They really shouldn't. And if they do, that says a lot about them and the people around them. Believe me, because it means that you're not true to what you're saying. This was just a photo to you. It was an opportunity to be seen. You see, they'll only control us with their money so long as we let them. And that's why they needed to get control over COVID, because you see what happened was, we know how to be self-sufficient. A lot of them don't, and they suffered behind it. They made a lot of us go to work because they couldn't handle making their own coffee or making their own hamburger, Right? But you won't hear about those essential workers, would you? And they're some of the strongest people I ever met in my life. So there you have it. What are you going to do, my friends? Not that you know or should know that America run on white lies. What are you going to do next? Well, that's all I got for now. This is CJ, and this was The Sound of Black and Brown. Please share your comments, feedback, thoughts. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you subscribe and share. Peace.